you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're in the middle of a series, Living Godly in an Ungodly Culture. It's a, a study of this little letter of 1 Peter and uh, as we reread 1 Peter verses 3 through 12, remember that this is one big run-on sentence in Greek. I, I said last week, if you ever go to graduate school and your teacher tells you that you've written a run-on uh, sentence, you can tell them that you're trying to be apostolic, because in Greek, that's what Paul does here. It's one big sentence. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 Beginning with the uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So far, when we've looked at this letter, we've answered three big life questions. We have answered the question, who are we? Verses, four, uh, verses 2 and 3, rather, tell us that we are select according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Verse 3 tells us that we are born again. We've been begotten into Jesus' family, into God's family, through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're being sanctified or set apart, or made holy by the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. We also answered where we're going. Verses 4 and 5, we are going to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. It's being kept for us by God. So who are we? We are God's children. Where are we going? We're going home. Well, what do we do now? And that's verses 6 and 7. Right now, we deal with the present. Right now, sometimes we suffer. Right now, sometimes we have tribulations. Right now, sometimes we have trials. And 
And we left off with verse 7 last week. And uh, when you get to the end of verse 7, that last phrase in verse 7, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the subject of verse 8. And that's where we will pick up this morning. Sometimes we sing the song, there's something about that name. Oh, I think we may have sang that last week or the week before. And when Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote that song, they wrote a terrific song. But that song doesn't even scratch the surface of telling us about Jesus, does it? But when we read here in 1 Peter, a very interesting phrase pops up in verse uh, 8. And, and that's number one on the little outline that I put in your uh, bulletins. Loving someone we haven't seen. That little phrase, whom having not seen, you love, that's kind of stayed with me all week. Uh, verse 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is someone we haven't seen, yet we love them. And, and that's kind of difficult in my mind to picture. How do you love someone you've never seen? If someone were to ask you, do you love banana pudding? Uh, of course, my answer is yes, that's because I've seen banana pudding, that's because I've eaten banana pudding, but if I've never seen or eaten banana pudding and someone says, do you love banana pudding, I'd have to say, I don't know, I've never seen it, I've, I've never tasted it, I've never tried it, I, I need to find out. Well, Peter here tells us that we've never seen Jesus, but we love him. And an example of that in scripture, and it's not a perfect example, but it's a pretty good example. It's found in Genesis chapter 24. So keep your Bible there in 1 Peter chapter 1. Keep it marked. But turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 24. And we are... Uh, and Moses here in Genesis 24 is in the middle of telling us about the life of uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those folks. And... Isaac has gotten grown, and Abraham wants to find a wife for Isaac, and he doesn't want Isaac to remember Abraham has left his homeland in Ur of the Chaldees, and he's gone to Canaan. And now he's in that promised land, and it's time for Isaac to find a wife, and Abraham doesn't want Isaac to take a wife from the pagan Canaanites around him. So Abraham sends his servant back to Ur of the Chaldees to find a wife. And so as we read, and we're not going to read all of this here, but we find out that the servant is willing to go. He is, he is ready to go. And the servant, in verse 10, takes 10 of his master's camels and departed. And all of his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. That is in Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham grew up and where Abraham's relatives were. And so the, the, in the evening time, the servant comes and he comes to the well to water his camels. That's when the women would come to the well to draw water. And so the servant has a plan. The servant plans on uh, asking for water. And then if the woman that gives him water says, may I... Feed your, or may I water your camels too, that's going to be this man's signal. That's supposed to be the girl. That's supposed to be the wife of Isaac. So the servant gets there, sees a beautiful young woman, 
asks the young woman, can I have a drink of water? She said, certainly. And she said, I will uh, water your camels too. And so the servant realized this is the girl. And so the servant starts talking about Isaac and starts talking about his master and how wonderful his master is, how nice it is, how nice he is, and how rich he is. And uh, he takes out some bracelets and some rings, says he took out a nose ring. Uh, you know, we look at nose rings today to be a little bit different. Back in those days, it's kind of like it is today. Everybody wore, wore nose rings. And so uh, the servant takes out the nose ring, and, and the, the girl says it's Rebecca, that's her name, Rebecca says, why don't you come to my house? And uh, we've got plenty of room for you. You can sleep the night. So the servant goes with Rebecca. When they get to Rebecca's house, Ishmael, I mean uh, Laban, Rebecca's brother, comes out and says, who is this? And Rebecca says, I met him at the well. And look at all these gifts that he's given me. And Laban says, uh-huh, come on in, rich young man. And, uh, and let's talk. And so uh, the servant tells Laban and Rebekah's family about Abraham, about Isaac, about the master, and about the plan to find a wife for, uh, for Isaac. And the servant says, I would like to take Rebekah back and let her be Isaac's wife. And, and Laban and Rebekah's family says, well, let's ask for Rebekah. Rebekah, do you want to go? Rebekah says, I'd like to go. I, I think, yes, I, I want to go. And so uh, they get back. Rebecca goes back with the servant. And notice in verse 62. Genesis 24, 62. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer, Laah-Roi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and his, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. So if you could picture Isaac the farmer's out in his field meditating and thinking, you fellows that have hay fields and uh, gardens and stuff, sometimes I know it's hard work, but I know when I'm cutting my grass, I cut my grass yesterday, sometimes you, you think, and it gives you, when you're running around and around on a lawnmower, there's not a whole lot to keep your mind occupied, so you think and you meditate. Rebecca meditates, and or Isaac meditates, and sees camels coming. Then it says in verse 64, Then Rebecca lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. And verse 65 says, Who is this? And the servant said, This is who I've been telling you about. This is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Now watch verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. As we go back to 1 Peter, I fully understand that this is not exactly what Peter is talking about. But it is a picture of loving someone that uh, you have never seen. Rebecca fell in love with Isaac from the description of who Isaac was and for the gifts that were given. And she was in love with him by the, before she ever met him. Isaac 
loved Rebekah as well. And so the same uh, idea here is found back in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse... Uh, <coughs> 2 Peter, no wonder that didn't look right. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. Uh, the only way we're going to successfully navigate a Christian or a Christ-like life in a world that is becoming increasingly unchristlike is if we learn to love the one we haven't seen. We're going to have to learn to love the one we cannot see more than the one that we can see, more than the stuff that we can see. You know, the Old Testament is all about God's people living in exile or being in exile. When you read the Old Testament, God's people generally are either getting ready to go into exile, they are in exile, they're just coming out of exile. They learn to live in a way that put them counterculture to their culture. If I were to ask you a question this morning, what do you think the most obvious threats to exiles are? Oh, and we've already pointed out that Peter calls his readers elect exiles. We too are elect exiles. We're called to live for Christ in an unchristlike world. I think the two greatest dangers for exiles, number one is despair. We say, I'm so far away from home, I'm away from my family, I'm away from my friends, I'm away from all that I find to be cultural, or all that I find to be comfortable. Look at this world, it's crazy, I don't know how to fit in. So we become despondent. Or the, op the extreme opposite of that is assimilation. And what do I mean by assimilation? It means fitting in, it means to, means to blend in. Uh, I don't know, I'm a little bit of a history nut. Uh, there, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Lost Colony. It's Roanoke. Uh, and when they were a, a small group of colonists that were left to fend for themselves, and when folks from England came back to reinforce the colony, uh, they the colony was gone, and there was only part of a word carved into a tree that named one of the Indian tribes around. And, and most historians think that uh, the, the colonists who came here, uh, we have a hard time appreciating English culture. Uh, when the colonists came, in England you couldn't hunt because all the game belonged to the king. And you couldn't really grow gardens because all the land belonged to the king. And so you had to have permission from the king to grow gardens. So the colonists got over here, and they had no clue how to take care of themselves. And if y'all know what winter's like in the northeast, uh, they were not prepared for it. And most historians think that that word they wrote in the tree was telling whoever was coming behind them that they were going to try to assimilate into this Indian tribe. And uh, DNA that's done through the descendants of these Indians, they found quite a bit of European DNA. Uh, there's some folks that were able to, when later other settlers came, uh, speaking to the Indians, the Indians knew how to speak English. And uh, they think that probably that Roanoke colony 
had taught them how to do that. That, that Roanoke colony had assimilated into that Indian culture. And that's what happens to exiles sometimes. They become just like the culture around them. Remember when Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon and the, they had a diet they wanted these young men to, to eat. They, they wanted to make them good little Babylonians. They wanted them to assimilate. And so the same is true with us as Christians. The two things we can look at around us, we can go one of two ways. We can get depressed. But all of y'all realize our world's going crazy today? Would y'all pretty well agree with that? That there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of just not very comfortable with where our future is headed. Well, one thing we can do is just wring our hands and say, oh my goodness, the sky's falling. And we can become despondent, we can despair, we can become depressed, or we can assimilate. And both of those are fatal to the walk of a Christian. What we need to learn to do is to live counterculturally. God's people have always had a contentious relationship with the culture around them. Our, 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 read, our daily reading this past week was in Esther. And you all remember the story of Esther, how uh, Haman was a man in that story that uh, the people were supposed to bow down to him and give him honor. Mordecai would not do that. And Mordecai didn't have anything against Haman in particular, but he, his culture, his Jewish culture says, you don't bow down to anybody except Jehovah God. And when Mordecai didn't do that and didn't bow down, Haman took it personally and says, he's trying to disrespect me, and so he set out to kill all the Jews. God's people have always lived counterculturally. Now for a while the United States was a little bit of an anomaly. For the first couple of hundred years that the United States colonies uh, were in existence, uh, they weren't the United States then, we didn't become the United States of America until later, but they, the colonies, they were founded on godly principles. A lot of the, uh, the pioneers that came here, a lot of the pilgrims that came here, came here to find religious freedom. They came here to be able to worship God the way that they wanted to worship them. Most people don't realize that most of our Ivy League, what we call Ivy League schools today, most of those started out as seminaries. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they started out to train preachers. Uh, that is, that's the foundation our country had. That is an anomaly when you look at world history. Very few civilizations have set out to honor God and worship God. Now what we are seeing today is a shift back to the way most of the world lives. And that's very anti-God, anti-religion, very humanistic, very socialistic, very uh, might makes right, let the, let the masses decide, let the people decide. And so we find ourselves becoming more and more... Uh, contentious with our society. So, Jesus, so Peter here says, we need to learn to love the one we haven't seen. 
We need to learn to love that Jesus and learn to stay focused on him, Jesus Christ. Y'all, that's the only way we're going to be successful. If we lose our focus on Jesus, we're going to become so despondent we can't function. Or we're going to assimilate and be just like the world. And y'all, we've been called to live differently, to walk differently. Well, what does this love look like? First of all, in verse 8, this love is an increasing love. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I don't know about y'all, but I cannot wait to see my Jesus. I've read about him. I've trusted him. I've hitched my wagon to what he teaches and what he promises. And I can't wait to see him. I uh, could only imagine people that get on the internet, like eHarmony and Match.com and the different social dating sites, and let's say, or maybe y'all remember when they had such a thing as pen pals? A lot of the guys in prison have pen pals. People write them. Uh, imagine a man and woman falling in love with each other over the Internet, and they tell you about each other. And I had a buddy of mine. He, uh, he fell in love with this woman on the Internet. She said he, he said, she is everything I've ever uh, dreamed of. Uh, she's perfect. She is just absolutely the most perfect woman I've ever seen. The problem was he was married. And uh, I said, the problem is, you're number one, you're not married to her. I said, number two, you've never seen her. And he said, but I've seen her picture. I said, no, you've seen the picture someone sent you. I said, for all you know, you're corresponding with a 90-year-old hairy-chested man. You have no idea who you're talking to, right? <laughs> But just picture someone who falls in love. With what, what, what people do when they fall in love, their next logical step is, let's meet. I want to see you. I want to be with you. I want, and that's the way we ought to be with Jesus. Here's my question for you. Do you love Jesus more today than you did yesterday? Or last week or last year? That love ought to be increasing. Marie and I have a three-year anniversary this week. And I'll say in front of everybody here, I love Marie more than I did today, more than I did three years ago. This has been a wonderful three years for her. And for me. <laughs> and should the Lord let us live, I'll love her more three years from now than I do right now. But shouldn't that be the way our relationship with Jesus goes? We ought to love him more and more. We ought to want to see him. Even though we haven't seen him, we should long to see him and just can't wait till we're able to get there to be with him. Not only is it an increasing love, it's a securing love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing. Even though we haven't seen Jesus, we believe in him and we trust in him. And when he says it is finished on the cross, we trust in that. And we put our anchor there. We put our hope there. 
We sing the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we talk about the solid rock. Anything else is sinking sand. That love is a securing love. It secures us to Jesus Christ. It's an increasing love. It's a securing love. It's a rejoicing love. It says that we rejoice with inexpressible joy. So joyful, words can't express it. Have you ever loved someone or something so much you just words couldn't express your love? That's the way it is. I, I can't explain exactly why I love Jesus like I do. I can tell you he saved me and I can tell you he loves me and, and there's a lot of reasons I love him. But really and truly, that, that joy that I have for, coming to, uh, for having a relationship with Jesus it's, it's joy inexpressible. I, I can't really share my thoughts. Women want their men to they'll say, why do you love me? And we try to answer as best we can. But deep down, if we're all honest, isn't there something about our husbands and about our wives? We can't explain exactly why we love them. But they bring us joy and so much more with Jesus. Learning to love the one we haven't seen. It's an increasing love, a securing love, a rejoicing love. It is a glorifying love. Look back at verse 6. There are two things in this paragraph we are told to rejoice in. Verse 6 tells us, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. One of the things in which we find our joy is in our suffering. It's in the trials and the tribulations. And then the second thing is found here in verse 8. And it ties into verse 9. And that's our salvation. Suffering and salvation go hand in hand. In our lives, both of these things go together. If we're honest, those of us here that are Christians, and I think that's most all of us, would we admit that our lives are part suffering, part joy? Our lives are part hard, part joyful. We have suffering, we have salvation. It's, it's all there together. It's two sides of the same coin. The common denominator is Jesus. Jesus is what gets us through our sufferings and hard times. And Jesus is what we celebrate and who we celebrate with our salvation. The one that we've never seen, we give him glory. You know what we need to do when we're suffering? Give Jesus glory. You know what we need to do when we're going through good times? Give Jesus glory. It's an increasing love. It's a securing love. It's a rejoicing love. It's a glorifying love. It's also a persevering love. Notice verse 9. He says, receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. You and I are walking a journey of faith with Jesus Christ. Somewhere in the past, we have trusted Jesus as our Savior, and we began a walk of faith with Jesus Christ. One of these days, and we don't know when that will be, one of these days, that walk of faith, we'll get to the end of our walk with faith, and our faith will become sight, right? 
salvation of our souls, glorification of our souls, will be like Jesus. You know what Peter's saying here? Peter tells his listeners that you will get to the end. You will get there. Have you ever gone on a trip that it seemed like you'd never, you'd never get to wherever it is you were going? To this day, I'm 59 years old. In my mind, the longest trip I've ever been on is between Little Rock, Arkansas and Fort Smith, Arkansas. And I know that I've been on a lot longer trips. But I'm here to tell you that seemed like that took 10 years to get from Fort Smith to Little Rock and then coming back the other way from Little Rock to Fort Smith. Don't know how long your journey is going to be, but Jesus says you'll get there. When we love the one whom we can't see, our salvation is being kept for us. Our salvation is being reserved for us. We will get to the end, you will make it. Our faith will get us through. Can I tell you something about faith? Genuine faith and genuine love will never fail. If you have genuine love or someone has genuine love for you, they will not fail you. Paul says love never fails in 1 Corinthians 13. That, that Scripture we like about love. Genuine faith never fails either. So we need to learn to love the one we can't see. Number three, how can I be certain that I can love someone I haven't seen? How can I be certain I can love someone that I haven't seen? Peter here says, that our love isn't based on something you do, but rather on someone, and that's Jesus Christ and what he did. It's what Jesus did in the past, verses 3 through 5. He made you part of his family. He gave you new life. He, he made you alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins. It's about what he's doing in the present, verses 6 to 7. Even in the middle of your suffering, know Jesus loves you, and Jesus is going to see you through. No matter how hard it gets, you will get to the end. And it's about loving the one who's got your future in his hands as well. The reason I know I can love someone I've never seen is because that person I haven't seen is Jesus Christ. And it's what he's already done. It's not what he's going to do, it's what he's already done. And he's saved. Now Peter switches directions when he gets to verse 10, verses 10 through 12. And he takes that phrase at the end of verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, and he talks, then he says, the salvation of your souls. And he takes that last phrase, the salvation of your souls. And he expands upon that a little bit. Can I tell you that number four, your salvation wasn't an accident? Your salvation was not an accident. Verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching water what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand 
the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The plan for your salvation did not start the day you got saved. The plan for your salvation started in eternity past. We studied that in our Sunday school class this morning. Before God ever said, let there be light, God's plan for saving humankind was already in his mind, was already taking place. The prophets, it says, and he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, it says that they inquired and they sought out carefully. They were inquisitive. They asked what this salvation thing was all about, and they prophesied about the grace that would come to you. They saw salvation in pictures. Noah saw the flood in the ark, and, and that's a form of God saving his people. Moses in the burning bush, the wilderness wanderings, uh, the conquest of Canaan, the temple, the exile, all of these are pictures of salvation and, and what's going to happen through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets specifically, notice what it says. They're in verse uh, 11. Searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated. They wanted to know when is this salvation going to take place? What kind of salvation is it going to be? Who is it going to be about? And notice it says that they received this information from who? The Spirit of Christ. Jesus Christ was in them. Now this is pretty cool. If you've zoned out for a minute, zone back in for a second. The Spirit of Christ was inspiring these Old Testament prophets and telling them about himself. Jesus was telling these Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Micah. He was telling them about himself. He was teaching them about himself. Peter's later going to use the term Holy Spirit to say, the same thing. The Spirit of Christ revealed to the prophets two things about himself, verse 11. His sufferings and his glories that would follow. Jesus told the prophets he was going to suffer. And then Jesus told the prophets that after he suffered he would be glorified. Isaiah is full of those prophecies. Micah is full of those prophecies. Daniel is full of of those prophecies. And notice in verse 12, and I'm fixing to wrap up, in verse 12, a very interesting phrase. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Even angels are curious about this salvation. Even angels kind of wonder what's going on with this salvation. Think about something. Jesus Christ did not suffer and die for the angels. When an angel sins, an angel is cast out of heaven and is put in chains and reserved for judgment at the end times. An angel has no opportunity for salvation. An angel has no opportunity for repentance. Human, humans and angels are both created beings. Both are created by God, and, and they have some similarities. 
But the fact is, humans are a little bit lower than angels. Hebrews 2 verse 7 tells us that. That humans are a little bit below angels. Now angels, they are stronger than we are. Angels are smarter than we are. Angels can fly. Angels can take different forms. Angels can appear and they can disappear. But listen to me this morning. Jesus said, I'm going to love the human race so much that in spite of their fallenness, I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to become lower than the angels just like they are. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to pay the price for their sin. I'm going to have a relationship with these humans. And y'all, the angels are, are curious about that. They want to, they, they, they've never experienced salvation. They can experience salvation. You want to know why? Why are angels curious? An angel could sing, holy, holy, holy. The book of Revelation tells us angels do that. An angel will never sing and cannot sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound saved a wretch like me because an angel can't experience grace. And the angels are curious about that. Why did God love us? Why did he love the human race? Why did he die for the human race? And I've only got two words. God's grace and God's mercy. Right? It certainly wasn't because of our brilliance. Look at the mess we've made of the world around us. It is not for our intelligence. It isn't because we do good things. He loves us because he wanted to. That ought to humble us. Because we realize we don't deserve grace. That's what makes grace grace. And as we wrap up, I want to look at this first part of verse 12. And we're going to tie a bow on this message by making it very, very personal. Peter uses the word you quite a bit in this verse. I want you to take the word you out of this verse and put your name there as we read this. Verse 12. To them, that's the prophets. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, that's us, by the way, they were ministering. The things which now have been reported to Andy Blank through those who have preached the gospel to Andy Blank by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things the angels desire to look into. We talk about for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus did die for the whole world. But can I tell you sometimes we read that verse and we forget that what Jesus did on the cross was and is personal. He died for you. He died for me. 
And that makes me fall in love even more with the one that I can't see. Let's bow.